This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some people may find distressing. So as always, discretion is advised. There's something that occurs to me quite often, especially first thing in the morning. And I know it says something about myself more than anything, but on mornings when I know I have somewhere I need to be, my brain regularly flashes a thought. What if this is the day I die? What if something unexpected happens? I come back to that idea time and time again when I research these cases. How people wake and go about their day and that they don't know it will be their last. They do all the usual things. They wash, they dress, they chat to people. And then later, they're dead. It's that sudden. This thought came back to me again when I started looking at today's case and the murder of 24-year-old Peter Miller from Great Yarmouth, a seaside town on the east coast of Norfolk, one which I visited before on the podcast when I covered the murder of Dora Gray. Peter's murder, though, is a little more up-to-date than Dora's, taking place on Sunday the 9th of December, 1984. The day was cold and wet, and Peter, who lived with his brother Tony and Tony's wife Paula, spent most of the day at their home in 10 Camden Place. Speaking to the Eastern Daily Press in April of 2013, Tony remembered how he and Paula got up at around 11 that day and left in the afternoon to visit Paula's sister for lunch, before heading to the crematorium, a routine they'd started in August after their daughter had been stillborn. Some days, Tony remembered, Peter went with them, Other times, he didn't. He was reportedly in a bit of a bad mood that Sunday morning, and he stayed home because there was football on later that day, when Liverpool were playing the Argentinian side Independiente in the Intercontinental Cup. At about 4pm, Peter left home to help an elderly neighbour fix their cistern, and then he came home again, This is one of those cases where the timeline of his day has been added to and embellished upon over the course of the years. But still, nothing is known of what happened after he returned to 10 Camden Place that late afternoon. It was roughly 7.40pm when Tony, Paula and Paula's teenage sister Kerry returned home. Tony says that he knew instantly something was wrong. The door was slightly ajar and he glimpsed something in the kitchen through the darkness, a shape on the floor. Later, he'd remember a smell, too, as if there was gas in the air. Sensing trouble, he sent Paula and Kerry next door to fetch help. Speaking about the moment at the inquest in 1985, Tony said, When I arrived home, I found the door open. I saw Peter lying on the floor. I didn't realise it was Peter at first because it was dark and there weren't any lights on in the house. I just saw a dark form. I went straight through to the kitchen to turn a light on and saw it was Peter lying face down in a pool of blood. I turned him over and tried to wake him up but there were no sign of life. I think I panicked and went out of the house to see if Paula had called an ambulance. He said that Peter was wearing only tracksuit bottoms and one shoe, 
and that his jumper was lying on the floor beside him. I laid his jumper underneath his head. I then noticed something in the air which was making me cough and burned my eyes. At first I thought it was gas and tried to pull Peter out of the room. I didn't think he was dead and that's why I was concerned about the gas. What Tony didn't realise in the heat of the moment was that Peter had been stabbed once in his upper left chest, reportedly severing an artery and cutting his windpipe, leaving a wound which was 17 centimetres deep. Dr David Harrison, the man who carried out the post-mortem on Peter's body, would find that Peter had probably been stabbed between 5 and 7 p.m., and that, despite the depth of the wound, it could have taken between 45 and 60 minutes for Peter to die. His eventual death was found to have been caused by shock and haemorrhage due to the single stab wound. He went on to say that during the first 15 minutes, he probably would have been able to move or shout for help. Indeed, police discovered a trail of blood leading from the front door, which opened into the living room through to the kitchen, indicating that he had been able to walk from one to the other. There were no other signs of struggle, though, except a broken letter rack on the back door and a CS self-defence canister on the floor, which no one claimed to recognise. That morning, Peter Miller woke up in a bad mood. He did a job for a neighbour and planned on watching the football. This could be any day, except that for Peter... It was his last, and as always, what happened to him remains unknown to this day. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. a photograph of Peter, one of a handful that you can find online. I don't know when exactly it was taken, but it's probably from the early 80s. The colours are faded, all but the pinks, which seem to have been enhanced by the film, perhaps by a chemical imbalance. In it is a serious-looking Peter, his hair cut in a style for which my only frame of reference is Noel Gallagher in the 90s. His hair is dark brown and cut in a choppy line across his forehead. He's frowning slightly, his eyebrows brought inwards with the creasing of his brow. He looks wiry with scattered tattoos up his arms, wearing a light grey t-shirt which is almost, but not fully, a vest top. His gaze doesn't quite meet the camera lens, instead falling just to the right and undercutting the seriousness of his face and the coolness of his look somewhat. In a hand which is clasped to the centre of his chest, he holds a tiny puppy, which is brown with little white paws and a white bib. A larger dog, probably related to the smaller one, sits half cut out of the photograph beneath the curve of Peter's right arm. As I look at the picture, I notice the side of his arm which 
holds the puppy is pressed flat against the white outside wall of the house. And for a second, the feel of the wall flashes into my mind, the coolness of it pressed against a bare arm. There can be something visceral about the act of looking at a photograph, even one of someone you've never met before, whose life you only know about because violence befell them. I always find it hard to piece together facts about the people whose cases I cover, in part because the circumstances of their life are mostly being relayed by their relatives and friends. Photographs allow you to view a person from a different angle, away from the cold facts that are available. They give life to the words which have been written about someone. In Peter's case, we know that he was one of eight children, the fourth of the eight, local to Great Yarmouth, and was born on the 12th of September 1960. Tony, the brother with whom he was living, was a year younger, and dotted around them were the others, three more boys and three girls. There are several articles from across the years which mention Peter, along with his siblings, at least some of them, and from the information I can gather, they spent time in care throughout their childhoods, attending school in Galston and nearby Belton. By the time they were teenagers, though, Peter and Tony were back living with their mother Sylvia at her home at One Barrack Road in Yarmouth. Tony would say how, when they were teenagers, they had brushes with the law. But by their early twenties, according to Tony, the brothers had begun to settle down. Peter was reportedly seeing a girlfriend and Tony bought a home, the one at 10 Camden Place where he lived with Paula, and they in turn took in Peter as a lodger. By December of 1984, Peter, who had worked a number of jobs in the past, had been in b without employment since the summer and was reportedly looking for something in the offshore industry, but had been unsuccessful. He was a quiet man who had a lot of friends, although none with whom he was particularly close, nor ones who came round or he saw regularly. And as far as family knew, he didn't have any enemies. He liked watching football. He was a big Chelsea fan. And his sister Linda remembered how he would play with her son Graham, who was four at the time, and go jogging with him. Despite the fact that he was normally quite quiet, after his murder happened, his family started to think back on that time and how, in the months before his death, from around July onwards, Peter had become even quieter and withdrawn. His sister Linda said, if he had a problem, he wouldn't speak about it. In another report from the 15th of April 1999, Tony elaborated on this, saying that in the months before his death, Peter had begun to experience violent mood swings and was isolated and withdrawn. It's still not known what could have affected his mood, but as police began to investigate his murder, they started to uncover that this quiet man, who never really spent much time with friends, had been seeing an awful lot of one person in particular in the week before his death. A man whose identity is, as far as I can tell, still unknown. As police descended on 10 Camden Place after the discovery of Peter's body, they began to build up a picture of the crime. 
And what began to emerge were several unusual clues. The first of which was the small CS canister found at the scene. Tony had reported the smell of gas as he first entered the kitchen to find Peter on the floor, and the canister was discovered in the lounge where the stabbing had occurred. According to an official photograph printed in the papers, it appeared to be European and has French writing on the front. While CS spray was being trialled around that time for use in the Norfolk Police, it was illegal to own or use in Britain, although it was reportedly much easier to get abroad. Given the fact that these canisters weren't common items, no one in the Miller family knew of Peter owning one, and it could not be proved that he was the one who had used it in self-defence. So, police concentrated their inquiries around the possibility that his murderer may have come from abroad, or have ties with people who did. Early investigations centred around the movements of people at Great Yarmouth Port, although I can't find anything to suggest that something came of this. Speaking about the canister in the East Anglian Daily Times, Detective Superintendent Colin Bunn, the man leading the investigation, said, People tend to show these things around, so if anyone knows anybody who keeps one of these things in their house, they should please come forward. We are not trying to find out if people are illegally holding these. We are looking for someone who could have committed a murder. While the investigation into the CS canister seems to have had few results, there were other clues found at the scene. Most notably and mysteriously were traces of hair from a wig, on which there has been very little comment since. Remember that there were no signs of forced entry, and according to the police, the indications are that Peter let his attacker into the house willingly. In which case, why is there wig hair present at the scene? What purpose could it possibly have played? There are no other reports of physical evidence found at the scene itself, and the blade with which he was stabbed, which was reportedly over six inches in length, has not been recovered. There was one more lead, though, probably the most perplexing of all of them, and this comes from sightings which took place throughout the week leading up to Sunday the 9th of December, and concern a man with whom Peter had been spotted on a number of occasions. On the 19th of December 1984, the East Anglian Daily Times led with the headline Diary of a Mystery Man. Laid out in the article were four different sightings of Peter with this man and two occasions when he was seen solo in the area around Camden Place. The man was described as being in his early 20s. He was around 5 feet 6 inches tall with collar-length fair hair. He might have had a silver earring in his left ear, which was described as being a sleeper or a cross, and he also could have had a tattoo on his right forearm. The first of the sightings occurred at around 12 noon on Wednesday, December the 5th on Blackfriars Road, walking towards Camden Road. Don't confuse Camden Road with Camden Place, where Peter lived. They are separate locations although Camden Place is barely marked on most maps. It's a mazy alleyway which runs parallel to Camden Road and at a 90-degree angle with Blackfriars. 
The day I visited, it was early afternoon, and I took a little jog up the alley. In front of me, a middle-aged woman began singing loudly as I rounded the corner. I remember wondering at the time if it was in reaction to the sound of my footsteps, and feeling a little guilty at the idea that it might be. Camden Place itself is one of those alleys which feel narrow and enclosed, and the buildings stand tall and boxy on either side. It's not unpleasant there, but the area is obviously a little run down, not hugely affluent, and has the same kind of feel as a lot of those old seaside resort towns. Blackfriars Road, where Peter and the Mystery Man were spotted, forms the main length of an upside-down Y-shape with Camden Road, it's long and open and relatively busy. The day that Peter and the man were seen, he wore a grey or green zip-up bomber jacket, and the witness noticed that there was, perhaps, as would be reported again, an earring in his left ear. The next sighting occurred on the same day, Wednesday the 5th. This time, the two were seen on King Street, outside the St George's Arts Centre, now St George's Theatre. It's a short walk from Camden Road, just under 10 minutes according to Google Maps. We don't know what the two men were doing in the three hours between sightings, but on Friday the 7th of December, they were seen again, this time in the Blackfriar Tavern, which is on Blackfriars Road, just opposite the entrance I went down to access Camden Place the day I visited. This time, the man was wearing a jumper and jeans. The fourth sighting occurred on Sunday, December the 9th, the day the murder took place. It was at around 12 noon on Blackfriars Road, near the archway of the town wall, which runs most of the length of the road. The man was again wearing a bomber jacket, and this time he had dark trousers on. The final two sightings occurred on the evening of the murder, and both times the man was seen alone in the area around Camden Place. The first occurred between 7 and 7.15 on the Sunday night, just half an hour or so before Peter's body would be discovered. This is the only sighting in which he's described as wearing glasses, and he was dressed in casual clothes. It's been reported that he asked a member of the public for directions to Camden Place, and that this person actually took him to Peter's front door. On the 13th of December, Detective Superintendent Colin Bunn told the coroner Keith Dowding, we are pursuing a number of lines of inquiry, but our main inquiry at the moment is towards a man who was taken to the address at Camden Place at about 7.05pm on the night in question. The final sighting occurred at 9.30pm on the same evening, this time on West Street, a road which is barely more than an alley itself, and down which you can directly access Camden Place. This time, he was reportedly wearing a zip-up jacket which had no collar. It was believed that every sighting of this man was the same person, with Inspector Brian MacDonnell of Yarmouth Police saying, We are satisfied that the descriptions are very similar, enough to suggest that it is the same man. As the best of the leads which police possessed, they were eager to follow up on the sightings of the mystery man. 
They worked on the assumption that despite the fact he may have been seen in Yarmouth as far back as July the 29th of 1984, the day the carnival took place, he was not local to the area, as no one seemed to recognise him. Police focused on guest houses in Yarmouth and Gorleston and hypothesised that he must have been staying locally. Despite the numerous sightings leading up to Peter's murder, the witness on West Street at 9.30pm represents the last time the man would be seen in Yarmouth, suggesting that he left town in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Strangely, even though there were several people who claimed to have seen the man, there were no artist's sketches produced at the time, so all we have to go on are vague descriptions of a person with fair, collar-length hair, maybe wearing glasses, maybe with a tattoo and an earring. At the height of the investigation, some 70 detectives were involved in the hunt for Peter's killer, and on Saturday the 15th of December, it was reported that a reward of £500 was being offered by Crime Stoppers, which was described at the time as being a pioneering scheme run by Yarmouth Police, a panel of businessmen and the Great Yarmouth Mercury. Nowadays, Crime Stoppers is a nationally recognised scheme and a name which you often come across in cold case research. Then, it was fairly new, having been set up in 1982, following a trip made by Detective Inspector Mike Cole to the US, where a similar endeavour had been in place since 1976, when a young man had been shot dead following a robbery at a petrol station in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Having very few leads, the Albuquerque police had taken it upon themselves to set up an anonymous tip line for witnesses to contact. Thus, the concept of Crime Stoppers was born. It would never have come to be in Yarmouth, though, if it wasn't for Detective Inspector Mike Cole and Jim Carter, who was the manager of the local Woolworths. Between them, they saw an opportunity to involve locals in crime-fighting in the community. In the case of Peter Miller, as well as the £500 offered by Crime Stoppers, Tony Miller also took it upon himself to offer up his own house the one in which Peter had been murdered, as a reward for any information which led to the arrest. Tony and his wife Paula were reportedly so upset by what had happened that they could not bear to return home after the murder, and were instead staying with relatives in the weeks after it occurred. On top of the rewards being offered, on Tuesday the 18th of December, a press conference was held by Peter's family in the Yarmouth Police Station's conference room. Unusually, despite being officially coordinated, it was only the family who took part in the plea, with no officers or detectives present during the conference. Instead, it fell to family members, including Peter's sister Linda and mother Sylvia. Linda told the gathered journalists that, I believe he was living in some kind of fear. It's gone through my mind that someone was looking for him. Myself, I think someone went round there to frighten Peter and went too far. His mother Sylvia spoke through tears when she said, I must meet this person on my own. I want them to contact me at any time, day or night, and I shall meet them whenever they say. There will be no police. I must meet this person on my own. 
She went on to say, If I can forgive, I will, but I know I won't. Despite the two awards on offer and the press conference, it appears as if by early 1985, police had all but hit a dead end in the inquiries. At the time of the inquest in June 1985, Detective Inspector Alan Whitaker said, It's a murder that's totally baffling the police in Yarmouth. A local boy with local connections, and we just can't get near it. He went on to say, No angle has been discounted, but we are totally in the dark. Despite this, his sister Linda praised the police for all they were doing and said that the family were continuing to pass on any information that they could think of. Over time, there has been a definite shift in the way that the Miller family have come to view the police's work on Peter's case. Nowadays, his brother Tony is the main advocate for justice for Peter, but he is also a man who is very obviously angry at the police and the ways in which he perceives them to have failed during the investigation. This may have cost Tony a great deal personally, and he certainly does have cause for anger, especially in light of the fact that the police admit that in 1991, 170 exhibits from the case were either destroyed or returned to their original owners. The CS canister, which was classified by police as being clearly significant, has reportedly been missing since the first six months of the investigation and is now classified as unaccounted for. There are a few different things that have struck me as unusual as I've researched this case. The first is that there was no photo fit of the suspect released, despite multiple sightings of him. The second is that no one official was present at the press conference. I've not come across this before in any of the cases I've covered, and I'd love to know why it was that they didn't feel as if it would be useful, especially considering that they had been utilising another scheme aimed at members of the local community through Crime Stoppers. The last thing that strikes me as odd is that the evidence was disposed of only seven years after the murder occurred. As far as I know, this isn't what you usually find. More so, evidence gets lost in a move or through multiple moves over time. And I know of cases much older than this where physical exhibits still exist. I don't want to speculate as to why these things may have occurred, but they did and any of them could have influenced the chance police had of catching Peter's murderer. In 1999, Tony Miller gave an interview where he referred to his brother as being a forgotten victim. He said, Basically, after only a few months, everything came to a halt, and we were left wondering why. I was told by officers at the time that if they didn't find anybody in the first three days then it was unlikely they would ever find the killer. I've approached the police many times over the years, but I just keep getting knocked back. While in the 2010s there has been much more interest from the police in solving Peter's case, without the 170 items of evidence, it's difficult to know how much progress they can possibly make. As the years go by, 
Tony Miller continues to rage against the police and their inability to provide him and his increasingly distant family with answers. It's been almost 38 years, and what is left in the aftermath of Peter's death is anger, unrest, and a family who cannot find peace. Oftentimes, I finish an episode by focusing on the sadness that surrounds a murder. Today, it is with anger and the ways in which violence can tear a family apart and ruin not only the lives of the victim, but also those of the people who loved them. There are so many unanswered questions in the case of Peter Miller. Why was the CS canister used? Why were there wig hairs found at the scene? How did this mystery man vanish completely? And did he even have anything to do with the case? Remember, Peter was stabbed sometime between 5 and 7 p.m. and the pathologist thought it could have taken up to an hour for him to die. If that is the case, and the mystery man was shown to the doorstep of 10 Camden Place at around 7.05 p.m., how was it that Peter was discovered dead at 7.40 by Tony? Unless the pathologist was wrong and he died much quicker, or the mystery man had nothing to do with the murder at all. Maybe the answers are out there somewhere. In 2020, it was reported that police had received a call of interest off of the back of their 35th anniversary appeal. And despite the fact that no more has come of it, it's difficult to imagine that no one in Yarmouth knew anything more about the murder of a local boy with local connections. Before I end today's episode, and indeed this series of outlines, I want to again say thank you to all of you who listen to the show, both new and old subscribers. Outline was born from my interest in cold cases, and I honestly had no idea when I began that it would ever attract more than a few listeners, or that the show would have had the impact that it has had on my life and how I see the world. I thought it might be interesting for some of you to hear a few statistics from the current series, and it was certainly interesting for me to compile. So, over the course of the Norfolk cases, and those I've covered over the past five months for Patreon, I've researched, including today and this month's Patreon episode, 14 different cases, which have involved 10 separate journeys, visiting 18 different locations, and either myself or my partner have driven 1,342 miles over that time. In terms of content, of the 13 cases I've fully finished as of now, I've written 62,571 words in around four months, and although I haven't worked out the exact number, I've probably compiled double when you include research. Sometimes the words and even whole episodes have come easily, and other times they've been a real struggle. I'm incredibly grateful, though, that I've had the time and am starting to get the financial support to be able to make outlines something that I can continue. It's a long process, and I know I'm not there yet, but with your help I'm starting to feel as if it's not completely hopeless to think that I can. Thanks to all of you who have taken the time to leave a review of the show, or who have signed up on Patreon, including my newest supporters, Ian Jezzard, Mockingbird Nation, 
and Jen M. I'll be taking a short break of maybe a month and a half after today to research the next series, which is looking like it's going to be Berkshire and maybe one more county. Over that time, I'll still be producing the monthly Patreon episodes, so you can catch those there. Thank you all for being brilliant listeners and for your encouragement, support and the attention that you give to these unsolved cases. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.